0: We're going to continue, as A.J. said, through the book of Luke. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. And uh, if you need a Bible, there should be one right on the pew rack in front of you. It looks a little bit like this one. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, if you need a Bible, or if you want an extra Bible, this is our gift to you. So please grab that and take it with you and devour it. And, uh, and we're going to dive into it this morning. Luke chapter 6, which in this Bible is on page 809, or if you're turning there in your own Bible grade or on your app or whatever you're using this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Well, if you're new to Citadel Square, we've been teaching through the book of Luke. We're going through the book of Luke passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph, and verse by verse. And we come this morning to Luke chapter 6 in this amazing passage where Jesus is going to spend all night praying, which is fascinating in and of itself. And then Jesus is going to call to himself 12 of his apostles, 12 of his disciples and name them apostles. And we're going to walk through this passage. There's only five verses this morning. So how are we going to get 40 minutes out of five verses? Wait and see. Hang tight. These apostles we're going to see as we read throughout the course of Scripture are going to be mightily used of God to do incredible things for him, for his glory, and for his kingdom. Now you may be here this morning, and maybe you've had a desire in your heart and in your mind and in your life to be mightily used of God. But you're thinking in the depth of your heart, it could never happen. Steve, you don't understand the depth of my sin. You don't understand the depth of my brokenness. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know my faults and my insecurities and my fears. How could God ever use me? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're just thinking, maybe I'm not that bad, but I'm just an ordinary person from an ordinary town that grew up in an ordinary environment that has an ordinary occupation. How could God use little ordinary old me? This morning, we're going to see how God took 12 men who were just ordinary men from ordinary places who grew up in ordinary hometowns, and he's going to transform them through his presence and through his teaching and through his power, and he's going to empower them to be sent out into the world and literally to become the foundation of the New Testament church. So would you turn with me in Luke 6, starting in verse 12 and reading through the next five verses together. This is the Word of God, and he has something to teach us through it this morning. Luke 6, verse 12. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he he desired, and they came to him. Sorry, we're going to get to that version in a minute. Let me start again. That was Mark's account, not Luke's account. In a minute, you'll see why I had a, a marker there. Luke 6, verse 12, here we go. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is Jesus praying to God for an entire night. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simeon, and I'm sorry, and Simon, who was called the zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. God has something to teach us through these five verses this morning that I believe if applied, can not only radically transform your life, but all of the people that you come in contact with on a daily basis. So as we look at these five verses today together, we're gonna break it down in this way. I'm gonna give you one observation about Jesus, four observations about the disciples, and one challenge for me and you. So if you're a note taker this morning, very simple to follow. One observation about Jesus Christ, four observations about these 12 men that he drew to himself, and then one challenge for me and you. Is that good? Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father God, we come this morning with eager hearts and expectant hearts and hearts that want to learn from you from your word. And we pray, God, that you would teach us. We pray that you would use your word to penetrate to our dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and even judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart, as you say in your scripture. We commit this time to you and pray that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at a little bit of the context here. Leading up to Luke 6, verse 12, uh, look at verse 12 with me. It says this In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. Well, what is these days? In these days, does that refer to a date on the calendar, a specific day and time, as we might think about these days? Actually, in this context, it's referring to a period of time, a season in the life of the ministry of Jesus that he's now up against pretty severe opposition. We've seen him over the past couple weeks as we've been studying through this book that Jesus has come under opposition from the religious leaders of the day. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders who don't believe what Jesus is saying, they don't trust in who He is, they don't want Him around, and they're challenging Him with everything that He does. And Jesus is now faced with what is He going to do with this opposition that is now coming at Him continually and forcefully. We saw back a few chapters ago, or a few uh, paragraphs ago, actually, that these religious leaders challenged Jesus' ability not only to heal the paralytic, but to forgive his sins. You can't forgive sins. We saw them grumble at Jesus for sharing a meal with a tax collector. What are you doing spending time with these sinners? We saw them question him about fasting. We saw them argue with him about the Sabbath. And now it's rising to a feverish pitch of this opposition and this consternation and this conflict that's coming at Jesus. And in Luke 6 verse 11, just one verse before where we started this morning, if you'll look there, it says, but they, referring to the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So do you feel it? Are you there in this environment as this narrative is being read? We can't just gloss over the fact that his his enemies are against him, that they're filled with fury and they're beginning to discuss what should we do with this man? What should we do with Jesus? Perhaps this was the beginning of the end. Perhaps this was the initial conversations that would eventually lead to the death of Jesus on the cross. Filled with fury, they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus is now faced with opposition. Jesus is faced with conflict. Jesus is faced with understanding. How does Jesus respond? Let me ask you a question. When you're faced with conflict, when you're faced with opposition, when you're faced with misunderstanding, how do you respond? What did Jesus do? Did he retaliate? Did he panic? Did he get angry? Did he run? Did he escape the conflict? No. Jesus prayed. And there's your one observation about Jesus this morning, is that Jesus prayed. Look at verse 12 again. In these days, he, being Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is a fascinating reality. That the default reaction of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when faced with opposition and misunderstanding and conflict, was to pray. And not only did he pray, but he prayed all night. I know there's a lot of educated people in here that have taken many exams and many quizzes, who have taken boards. And I know that there are people in here who have pulled an all-nighter, right? How many of you have pulled an all-nighter? Come on, I know your hand. I know there's more than that. We pull an all-nighter because it's an important thing that we have to do the next day. It's an exam that we have to pass. It's a, it's a board that's going to get us qualified to get our degree. And we pull an all-nighter and and also because we procrastinate if we're honest, right? Like we wouldn't have to pull the all-nighter if we didn't procrastinate. That's not the case with Jesus here. Jesus didn't procrastinate. But Jesus pulled an all-nighter because he was a person of prayer. Jesus pulled an all-nighter because there was a significant thing that was going to happen the next day when he was going to select 12 men to be part of his inner circle to change the world, and he wanted to seek the face of the Father. Jesus pulled an all-nighter because he wanted to commune with the Father. But it raises a question, doesn't it? Wasn't Jesus God? Why did Jesus need to pray? Why did he pray? And the answer to why he prayed was because he needed to pray. This is the incarnate Son of God. This is God that became man and made His dwelling among us, as it says in John 1. Paul talks about Christ and His humility, and he says that Christ emptied Himself by taking the very form of a servant, and He was born in the likeness of man. This is our Savior. This is God becoming man and making His dwelling among us so that He could live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, and give us eternal salvation with Him forever. This is our Savior. And yet in His humanity, 100% God and 100% man, and in His humanity, He had some limitations. In the same way that Jesus needed to eat and He needed to sleep, He needed to pray. Not only did he need to, he longed to be in fellowship with his Father. He longed to be in communion with the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony as Jesus prayed to the Father in this case and in many others. matter of fact, Jesus repeatedly withdrew to places where he prayed, to solitary places where he prayed as the Scripture says. You may remember in Mark, Mark gives an account of this in Mark one thirty-five. And it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and He left and went off to a solitary place where He prayed. This wasn't a one-off event just because He was about to call these 12 men to be His apostles. This was a lifestyle of Christ. It's not what He did, it's who He was. In constant communion with the Father, are we in constant communion with the Father? Do we live in dependence on Him the way that Jesus modeled for us, not only here, but throughout Scripture? You see, Luke, the author of the book that we're studying this morning, takes particular interest in the prayer life of Christ. You know, it's interesting to read the different accounts of the Gospel writers, because they're they're writing about the same accounts, the same events, the same narratives, but they all have a little bit of a take on the way that they viewed it from their own perspective. And if you read through the book of Luke, you're going to see that Luke has a particular interest in Jesus's prayer life. So we've already seen it in the first five chapters up to this point. We're going to see it some more in the book of Luke. You know, it's recorded when Jesus was a boy at 12 years old and his parents couldn't find him. Where was he? He was in the temple. Why? Because he wanted to be with his father. On the day of Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended on him, what was he doing in that moment? Jesus was praying. He most assuredly prayed in the desert when he was fighting off temptation. He prayed to the point of sweating drops of blood the night before his crucifixion. Jesus was a man of prayer, and he's showing us an example that we might follow. But not only is he showing us an example, he was communing with the Father, as his source of strength and sustenance. matter of fact, Luke just said one chapter earlier in verse uh, chapter 5: 16, he summarizes Jesus' prayer life in this way, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Fascinating the Son of God needing to commune with his heavenly Father. And here, in this passage, not only do we see Jesus praying, we see him praying all night. If you calculate that, roughly eight hours of prayer. Uh, I'm challenged to spend eight minutes, (laughs) much less eight hours of communion with the Father. Church, when is the last time that you've spent extended time with the Lord in prayer, in worship, in confession, in supplication, in crying out to Him because you need Him so badly? And you're trusting in Him to work in you and through you that you've got to spend time in prayer. Well, never never having spent an entire night of prayer, the only thing I could come up with in my mind was the day before I asked Marie's dad for her hand in marriage. And boy, that was a decision that was going to affect me and her and eventually a lot of other people. So, I went off to a park. I had a pond and had this little pathway around the pond. And for several hours, I walked that path and said, God, you have one last chance to change my mind, (laughs) because this is going to happen tomorrow. But I tried to come with a surrendered heart and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And pretty early in this extended time of prayer, it was confirmed that this is in fact the will of God. Does that mean I stopped praying? No, I spent the rest of the time praying for our life together, praying for her as an individual, praying for our marriage, praying for our future life together, that there was something significant that was about to happen. And I wanted not only God's blessing, but I wanted His power and His strength to see it go forward. I believe, and this is speculation, that Jesus' confirmation from the Father of the 12 exact men that He was going to pick was probably early in the night. Total speculation. But I believe much of the night was probably spent with Jesus praying for these men, praying for them by name, praying for the places they would go and the people that they would see and the the gospel that would be taken to the uttermost parts of the world. We have a little picture of this, actually an incredible picture of this in, in John 17, known as the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus praying for his disciples. And he prayed for their provision. He prayed for their protection. He prayed for their sanctification, and he prayed for their multiplication, that God would use them to reach the entire world for Christ. And it's Jesus, the Son of God, interceding on their behalf. And do you know that today Jesus intercedes for you? That he intercedes for you. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, it says that not only Jesus prays for us as our intercessor, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groans that words cannot express that we are being right now prayed for on a consistent basis by God Himself. And when God sends you out to do a work for Him, you need to know that you go with the power of prayer that's being lifted up on your behalf. Matter of fact, when you pray for another brother or sister in Christ, you are joining in a prayer session that is already ongoing. A prayer meeting is already happening between Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, and you get to enter into that prayer meeting as you pray for one another. Well, if Jesus needed to commune with the Father, how much more so do we? If Jesus needed to depend on the Father in prayer, how much more so do we? If Jesus needed to come before God and ask Him about a specific decision that was going to affect a lot of people, how much more so do we? If Jesus needed to spend extended time in prayer with the Father, how much more so do we? Your one observation about Jesus, very simple yet incredibly profound, is that Jesus prayed. Now, let's look at the disciples. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then he lists the 12 apostles in order from Simon all the way down to Judas Iscariot. You see what it says? And when day came... Jesus acted after spending extensive time with the Lord, getting confirmation and affirmation from Him. Jesus didn't wait. He didn't delay. He didn't procrastinate. He acted. God's confirmed this. I believe it. I'm going to take action. And He woke up. He didn't wake up because He was up all night. But when morning came, He acted and He called the disciples to Himself. And from among them, He selected twelve. I don't know if that verse was written about me. After a full night of prayer, when day came— it would probably say he slept. (laughs) After pulling an all-nighter, all you want to do is sleep. All Jesus wanted to do was take action because he was so excited about how God was going to take these men and transform the world. So he called his disciples, which as you read the text, it says that he called his disciples to himself, and then from among them, he chose the 12. So as we know from Scripture, as we continue to read, you're going to see that there are larger groups of disciples that follow Jesus. At one point, soon to come in Luke, we're going to see Jesus send out the 70, right? So, we know that there were at least 70 other disciples, both men and women, both young and old, that followed Jesus. So, he called this larger group of people to himself up to the mountain, and from them he chose 12 to be his apostles. And we can't overstate the effect and the significance of these 12 apostles going forward. As a matter of fact, Paul puts that into context for us in Ephesians 2.20. Paul's talking about the Christian church, and he says this, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That these are the disciples, the apostles that Jesus called to himself that would be the foundation of the New Testament church. Guys, that cannot be overstated. You see, the prophets would speak of Christ to come, and the apostles would speak of Christ who came, and together they would form the foundation of the Christian church as we know it. So let's take a look at these 12 men, shall we? As you read through the Gospels and you look at the 12 apostles, it's interesting, isn't it, why God chose these particular men, fishermen, ordinary men? Nothing spectacular about them? Now, if God the Father had given you the task of reaching the entire world with the gospel, how would you go about it? Right? What would be your strategy? What would be your method in thinking about global evangelization? Do a mass mail out? I've already gotten a few of those this week in the political climate. Do, I don't know, sky where everybody could see it and they would know it would be a miracle. I I could think of a number of ways, probably not good ones, but I don't think I would have chosen these 12 guys, (laughs) right? When you read the Scripture, it's fascinating that God doesn't leave out their weaknesses, that He chose ordinary men like me and you to do an extraordinary work in this world. First of all, just just some fun facts about the disciples in case you're playing Bible trivia later. Well, this list of 12 is not only written for us here in Luke, but it's uh, listed for us in three other places in Scripture. You have the same list or a similar list in Matthew 10, you have a similar list in Mark 3, and then you have a similar list in Acts 1 with the exception of Judas who had already departed at that point. Some of the list, it's interesting to know as you dive into these four comparative lists of the 12 disciples in Scriptures. One of the things you need to know or you'll be confused is that some of these guys have various names. They're referred by two different names to refer to the same individual. For instance, Matthew and Levi, the same person. He was the tax collector. Bartholomew and Nathaniel, same guy. So he's called Bartholomew in one list, Nathaniel in another list. Judas, the son of James, is also known as Thaddeus. And so it's good to know that certain individuals use more than one name, or you could say, were there 16 apostles? Uh, no, there were 12. Some of them use different names in different lists. They either use a nickname or it could be their Hebrew and Greek name, depending on who's writing and who they're referring to. Interestingly enough, there were two that were named Simon, there were two that were named James, and there were two that were named Judas. Maybe that's why they had some nicknames thrown in. (laughs) Hey, James! Two guys turn and nobody knows who's supposed to be listening. There were two sets of brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. In every list of the disciples, Peter is named first. Peter was the first among equals. Peter was obviously their spokesperson. Peter sometimes uh, spoke well and sometimes not so much. I read one commentator and he said, uh, Peter had a foot-sized mouth because Peter always put his foot in his mouth. Uh, Peter was obviously and clearly uh, the leader of this group of twelve. And we see that demonstrated in his name being first in every list. Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last. Judas Iscariot is not only always mentioned last in the four lists in Scripture, but it's always with a descriptive, meaning Judas the traitor, with the exception of Acts, because he's not listed there. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Not only to see who's on the list, but who's not on the list— Luke, the author of the book that we're studying this morning, not named among the twelve. Mark, another gospel writer, not named among the twelve. What does that tell us? Were these men not significantly used by God? Did these men not have specific duties that God called them to? Luke was a physician. Uh, Luke was a historian. Luke wrote both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Is, not that, is that not significant? Mark, the author of the book of Mark, is that not significant? You see him out doing ministry and being faithful throughout the book of Acts, is that not significant? And I think the principle for us this morning is this. You don't need a title to be significantly used by God. God chose these men at this time for a specific purpose in a specific season. But it did not negate the fact that there were a lot of other people serving the Lord faithfully and giving their lives to the cause of Christ. And they may have been doing it up front, or they may have been doing it behind the scenes, but they were significantly used of God. Church, you don't need a title to serve God. Don't wait on the pastors and the elders and the staff and the serve team leaders. God wants to use you, and He wants to use you in a powerful and significant way. So let's make four observations about the disciples. Here they are. Number one. They were chosen by Jesus to be apostles. They were chosen by Jesus to be apostles. Jesus gave them a name, He gave them a title, and He gave them a task. And He selected these 12 in this season, in this particular time, to form the foundation of the New Testament church. In this moment, they went from being disciples to being apostles. So, Steve, what's the difference? I'm glad you asked. The difference between a disciple and an apostle goes back to the rooted Greek word. A disciple simply means a pupil, a student, or a learner. That's a disciple. Well, how does that differ from an apostle? An apostle is a messenger or one who is sent out. A specific designation— of a messenger that would be sent out. Let me tell you two distinctions between a disciple and an apostle. You see, a disciple could choose their rabbi. They could choose their teacher. They could choose the one that they wanted to follow. John the Baptist had disciples. Other rabbis had disciples. Jesus had many disciples that chose to follow him because they were interested in what he had to say and what he was teaching. But an apostle is chosen by the one who is leading them, specifically. The other distinction is this. A disciple comes with no level of authority. They come to gain wisdom and knowledge, but not necessarily the authority that Jesus now gives the apostles to go out and be Jesus to the world. The apostles are given the authority of Jesus himself. When they teach, it's as if Jesus is teaching. When they show up on the scene, it's as if Jesus is showing up on the scene. As a matter of fact, Luke goes on to tell us in chapter 10 verse 16 that those who receive the apostles receive Jesus. And those who rejected the apostles, guess what? They rejected Jesus because it was as if Jesus himself was showing up through their lives. But church, I want to tell you something incredibly important and profound about Jesus's selection of the apostles. And I, I uh, mistakenly jumped there at the beginning uh, of the sermon, but I want to go there now. Turn with me to Mark's account, Mark 3. This is on page 787 in your pew Bible if you're reading this Bible. Or turn to your Bible to Mark 3, verses, uh, starting in verse 13. This is uh, Mark's account of this same narrative where Jesus is uh, on the mountain and then selecting the apostles starting in chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be, what's it say? So that they might be with him. If you've got your own Bible, circle it. I don't care if you circle it in the pew Bible. Somebody else might pick it up and see it. I want you to circle with Him, that when Jesus chose the 12 apostles, He called them to be with Him, then He would send them out to preach. Then He would send them out to preach. That when Jesus calls us, He calls us to Himself. He calls us into relationship. He calls us to be with Him to prepare us to be used by Him. And we see that so clearly in Mark, and he just says it in a way that Luke didn't say it. But also, Luke emphasized that Jesus prayed all night, and Mark didn't capture that in his narrative. That's why we read the whole context of the Bible to understand Jesus and who he was and how he was ministering. And we see from this that Jesus put relationship before religion. Jesus put training before the task. Jesus put development before deployment. He called the disciples to be with Him, and He's calling you to be with Him. That God always draws us in before He sends us out. Because when He draws us in, He draws us in to transform us. He draws us in to sanctify us. He draws us in to give us His heart and His mind. He draws us in to empower us by His Holy Spirit. He draws us in to help us find our identity in Him and not ourselves. He draws us in to cleanse us from our sins and make us a cleansed vessel useful to our master. That Jesus draws us in before sending us out. But church, once He draws you in, and once He does His work of sanctification, and once He does His work of transformation, you can't help but to go out. We're compelled to go out, but He's first going to draw us in. Observation number one is that Jesus chose them to be His apostles. Number two, they were 12 in number, right? This is the simplicity of biblical observation. And you can come to a class that we're having on that, shameless plug, uh, to teach how to study the Bible. One of the important elements of studying the Bible is to make simple observations. And here's one of them. They were 12 in number. There weren't 14 disciples. There weren't 8 disciples or apostles in this case. They were 12 in number. This wasn't an arbitrary number. It wasn't just because we like to count things in dozens. That Jesus intentionally and symbolically chose 12 men to be His apostles. Why the number 12? It's super significant because it parallels the Old Covenant in the Old Testament with the New Covenant that God is now ushering in through Jesus Christ. Because the church was established through the lineage of the 12 sons of Jacob. You remember as you read your Old Testament, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel had 12, and from the 12 tribes of Israel were God's chosen people, the Israelites. And now Jesus comes on the scene to usher in the new covenant of God In a new way to bring the gospel of peace to those who need it, to bring the long and expected awaited Savior, the Messiah shows up and he picks 12 men to be his disciples. And every single Jewish person who would have been observing that in this moment would have known the significance of the 12. Whereas the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, was formed through the lineage of the 12 sons of Jacob, the nation, God's new covenant people, is going to be formed through these 12 apostles. Matter of fact, it was so significant that in Acts chapter 1, when Judas had fallen away, the disciples came together and they prayerfully selected another so that they could round out the number 12. And I want to show you something from the last book of your Bible that shows this Old Covenant reality meeting with the New Covenant into the future to give us a symbol of incredible significance of the symmetry, the unity, and the significance of these 12 and 12 coming together. Turn with me to Revelation 21, the next to last chapter in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21, looking at verse 10. And I want you to notice with me how God refers to the 12 from the Old Covenant and the 12 from the New Covenant in future glory. As we read Revelation, this is John, one of the apostles, having been given a vision by God and writing it for us. And here he's speaking about the future, uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And, And follow with me starting in verse 10, chapter 21. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Crystal. I can't wait to see it. The new city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in all of its glory. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, <clears throat> excuse me, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Did this new City is coming down out of heaven, and you see on it wall around the city, and the wall had 12 gates, and on each of those gates had the name of one of the sons of Israel. And that wall was held up with 12 foundations, and the foundations, each of them having a name of one of the apostles. And here you see the culmination of God's redemptive plan from the old covenant to the new covenant from the 12 sons of Israel to the 12 apostles that would form the foundation of the New Testament church. They were 12 in number. Third, they were a diverse but unified group. I don't know if you could get any more diverse than this group of individuals that was selected by Jesus. Some were fishermen, some were tradesmen, one was a tax collector. One was a religious zealot. One was a traitor. They were diverse. However, they were incredibly unified. One was married. That was Peter. A couple of them were relatives. They knew each other. Many of them weren't. Some of them were extroverts, clearly, Peter. Some of them were introverts, and God still used them, introverts in the room. They were a diverse group of individuals, that were unified under the Lordship of Christ. They were unified in their mission. They were unified under the Lordship of Christ because they were compelled by His love and they were captivated by the needs of the world around them. And that's what unified them as one solid unit. Though from different backgrounds, though from different uh, places, they were unified as one unit under the Lordship of Christ. And maybe nothing speaks to this more clearly than the fact that among these 12, you had Simon the zealot and Levi the tax collector. So what? Well, Simon the zealot was a political nationalist that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Levi was a tax collector who was serving the Roman government through their system of taxation. In that day and time, they would have hated each other. They would have despised one another. They would have been literal enemies of one another. And yet, under the Lordship of Christ, with a shared vision, they become unified. I mean, this would be like a diehard Clemson fan marrying a diehard Gamecock fan. The only way that would work is by what God does, right? And that's kind of a silly illustration, but you get the point that you have two here, two opposing individuals with opposing viewpoints, with opposing motivations in life, with opposing goals, and God brings them together and says, through you, I'm going to build my church. And through you, I'm going to show unity to the world. And through you, I'm going to fulfill what John says in his gospel that they will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. Even when it's unlovable. Even when that person is so different from you, Siddle Square, I want you to look around. We have a diverse group of individuals in this room. We have people from different ages and stages of life. We have young and old. We have different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have different educational levels. We have different hometowns and different experiences. But God is calling us to be one in Christ, to be unified under His Lordship. To look to your left and to your right and know that God has called you to be with them specifically for this season of your life, to link arms together, to serve Him, to worship Him, and to be used by Him in this world. The disciples were unified by their devotion to Jesus, by their desire for development, by their deep compassion for the needs of the world, and it caused them to be one unified unit in Christ. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Who can come into our midst and go, something's different about that group at Citadel Square because of the way that they love one another. The disciples were very diverse, yet the disciples were very unified. And then our last observation this morning is, goes back to the title of our sermon. They were ordinary men who did extraordinary things. That God takes the ordinary, and He does the extraordinary. And you may sit here this morning and think, I'm just an ordinary person from an ordinary upbringing that has an ordinary occupation, nothing extra special about me. And God wants to take your ordinary life and do extraordinary things. That if you look at those whom Jesus selected out of the disciples to be his disciples, his apostles, you see nothing extraordinary about them. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were from Galilee, which was kind of known as I don't know, rednecks. <laughs> Country folk. Uh, not from the city. They were uneducated ordinary men is what Uh, One verse tells us in the New Testament that Jesus, interestingly enough, didn't choose a single religious leader to be among the 12. He didn't choose a Pharisee. He didn't choose a scribe. He didn't choose a rabbi. He didn't choose a Sadducee. He chose ordinary men to be among the 12. He seemingly chose men who were notable only because they were ordinary. How about you? Jesus chose men who were just like me and just like you. And yet the testimony of these men in Acts 17 is that they turned the world upside down for Christ. They turned the world upside down for Christ. Ordinary men became the instruments by which Christ's message was carried to the ends of the earth. As I thought about this principle this week of God taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary, my mind went back to about three or four weeks ago when Marie and I got an invitation to participate in the 25th anniversary of the church that we helped with in Thailand. 25 years ago, some ordinary people from ordinary places like Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, who were compelled by God's love, who were captivated by the needs of the world, simply said, as Isaiah, here I am, send me. And God sent this ordinary group of people that had no extraordinary gifts or abilities or talents, just a simple faith and trust in God, to move to a Buddhist nation, to start sharing their faith and discipling people, watching God do His thing, and a church was planted. And this August, they're going to be celebrating 25 years of God's faithfulness through this church, that God takes the ordinary and He does the extraordinary that here at Citadel Square many of your lives have been radically transformed and changed. And it's just ordinary people serving an extraordinary God, trying to be faithful with what God has put in our hands. And God wants to do that in your life, and God wants to do that through your life, and God even wants to use your weaknesses to accomplish that. Maybe you're sitting here as I started, but Steve, you don't really know about all of my weaknesses and all of my struggles and all of my challenges. But I do know the weaknesses, the struggles, and the challenges of these 12 men. If you read through the Scripture, you can see that they showed their pride when they asked Jesus to sit on His right and left in glory. They showed their lack of faith when they couldn't drive out the demons and had to come back and ask for Jesus' help. They showed their lack of compassion when they wanted to call down lightning and thunder on the Samaritans, right? Good job, guys. They showed their lack of understanding when they wouldn't let the children come to Jesus. They showed their impatience by pushing out to sea when Jesus hadn't yet returned to the boats. You remember when Jesus was walking on the water? It's because the disciples were impatient, and they put out in the boats, and Jesus couldn't find them, and he had to walk on the water to go to them. Impatience. They showed their lack of discipline when they fell asleep in the prayer meeting at the most crucial point, right before Jesus was going to be crucified. Where are the disciples? You ever felt that way? Anybody ever fell asleep during a prayer time? You're in good company. They showed their lack of courage when they all scattered after Jesus' arrest, and some of them even showed their doubts when they didn't believe in the resurrection. What about you? Pride, insecurities, fears, doubts, lack of understanding, lack of compassion? We might say, well, those are disqualifiers to be used by God. God says those are actually qualifiers because when you are weak, I am strong. Paul says so much in 2 Corinthians. God spoke to Paul and says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Your ordinary life used for extraordinary work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Well, let's close with this. What changed them? You have to ask yourself the question, when seeing these 12 men go from ordinary people to extraordinary workers in the kingdom of God, what changed them? Well, first, they spent time with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. And in Acts, after Peter and Paul led 5,000 people to Christ, the onlookers observed, and they said, what is it with these guys? They were unschooled, ordinary men, is what Acts says. And yet now we see their boldness, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. As we are with Him in prayer, as we are with Him in His Word, He will transform us to be more like Him. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts 1-8 is probably the turning point for the change that happened in the disciples' lives. You know Acts 1-8? It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That, that these men were empowered by the Holy Spirit, given a part of God Himself that would remain in them to encourage them, to uphold them, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and upholds, to fill them with the very presence and power of Christ as they went. And that verse applies to every believer in the room. That you, believer in Christ, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be His witnesses all over the place. In your families, in your neighborhoods, at your workplace, in this city, in this state, in this country, and even to the ends of the earth. What changed? They stepped out in faith. They stepped out in faith, believing that God is who He said He was, and they stepped out in obedience. And then they multiplied their lives through multiplication. They kept passing it down to others, who would pass it down to others, who would pass it down to others. And the reason that we're sitting here this morning talking about Jesus and His disciples is because that chain has never been broken. Citadel Square, the baton is now in our hands. Will we pass it on? Will we do so in the strength that He provides? So there's your four observations about the disciples, your one observation about Jesus, and my challenge to you and to me is to go and do likewise. To go and do likewise, to do the very things that the disciples did to be transformed from ordinary men to extraordinary people in the kingdom of God. What did they do again? They spent time with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. Maybe for you, it's not an all-night eight hours of prayer. Start with eight minutes and watch God change you. Dive into His Word. Come and enjoy the fellowship of believers. Worship with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God's going to change you from the inside out. Trust in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we lack courage. Sometimes we lack faith. We're willing to claim God's promises about His provision. We claim God's promises about giving us direction. We claim God's promises about giving us peace. And we gloss right over this promise that God's going to give you power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be His witnesses. Let's claim that promise together. Let's step out in faith and obedience, and let's multiply our lives just as the disciples did. And the one thing that they did was they did it together. That God didn't call individuals, He called a team. That God didn't build individuals and send them out, He built a church. And He's calling us to do that in community with one another. God wants to take your ordinary life, and He wants to do extraordinary things, and then He wants to get all the glory for it. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your word. God I thank you for this community of believers that is such an encouragement to me and to one another. God I thank you for the model of Christ that demonstrated for us what it's like to be in fellowship with you. And God I thank you in advance for how you're going to use each of us and this church for for our good and for your glory. Would your kingdom come, would your will be done here in this place, even as it is in heaven. We continue to worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.